The presenting sponsor of Sober Stories is Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits, a spirits company on a quest to replicate and replicate well in as many different alcoholic spirits as possible, allowing us to drink our way. With over 17 spirits, five pre-mixed cocktails, and one spectacular sparkling wine, all without alcohol, Liars has become the Sober Stories team's standard for zero-proof drinks that feel festive and celebratory. Sober Stories is a mission-based company. You can find our company's core values right on our about page, and we are committed to partnering with other brands who put people and planet over profit too, which is why we love Wires. They have a sustainability and social responsibility mission at the forefront of their business with 100% recyclable packaging and a supply chain that reduces intercontinental freighting, a leading contributor to carbon emissions. They also outline their core values at Liars, which are mateship, awesomeness, the pay it forward principle, and empowered independence. In our opinion, Liars' commitment to people and planet makes their sips that much sweeter. Head over to Liars.com and use code SOBERSTORIES1010, that's the number 10, the word 10, for 10% off your purchase. Liars gives you the freedom to drink your way, to not just provide an alternative to those who don't wish to imbibe alcohol, but to ensure that everyone can enjoy the mirth and the merriment of a soiree or shindig. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? In honor of Pride Month this June, we're bringing you a month's worth of sober stories highlighting the beautiful spectrum of folks in the LGBTQIA community. The data tells us that this community experiences higher rates of mental health and substance use challenges. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, conducted by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, compared to those who identify as heterosexual, those who identify as gay or lesbian are two times more likely to experience substance use disorder. Those who identify as bisexual are three times more likely to experience substance use disorder. And those who are unsure how to identify their sexual identity are five times more likely to experience substance use disorder. And we know that the increase in alcohol use during the pandemic has also disproportionately impacted the LGBTQIA community, a 32% increase versus the 14% increase in the U.S. population at large. Though we know the data, the way alcohol impacts this vibrant community, we choose to celebrate this month. The diversity, the beauty, and the really, really good storytelling. Join us in celebrating Pride this month and every month, and let's tell good stories. What's up, Sober Stories family? Beth here doing a little party dance to celebrate 5,000 downloads. 5,000 downloads. 5,000 times a Sober Story podcast has been listened to. What? It is incredible to me that anyone listens to these stories we tell, let alone 5,000 times. Thank you for every listen, for every word, for every kind word. It truly means the world. To kick off our Pride Month series, I've got a great interview with the charming Kate Madry. Kate Madry is an actress, comedian, and the host of the Clear Headed Podcast. And we had such a great conversation that it felt like we left as new friends. Spoiler alert, I'll be on her podcast soon too. We talked about a ton of things, especially what it was like to get sober in a pandemic and getting sober alongside her partner, Sarah. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Kate and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, my friends, I am so excited to welcome Kate Madry to Sober Stories. Kate, thanks for joining us. Hi. Oh my gosh, we're here. <laughs> we're here. How's your day going? 
It's going. Yeah, a little we chaos. We had a little bit of a, a little chaos getting here. I'm so thrilled to be here. What is living in LA if you don't wake up to construction from time to time? And by time to time, yeah. every single morning. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't live in LA, but it is exactly what I would imagine living in LA is like. So I'm yeah. thrilled you're here with us and <laughs> so glad that you are able to sit down and tell your story to our audience. So for those who don't know you, who are unfamiliar with you, can you give us the cliff notes of who you are? Obviously, you're in LA, what you do, and then we'll dig into your story story in a little bit. Yes, totally. For some reason, like I'll be totally transparent here with everyone. Like I get so awkward introdu- introducing <laughs> myself. I think because I I have worn so many hats and I plan on wearing so many hats that it's so hard to con- condense it. But I'll try. <laughs> so Beautiful. overall, I am an actress. I'm a comedian. I live in Los Angeles. I've done everything from personal assisting to managing a restaurant to PAing on set. I mean, I've done everything. I will continue to do everything. But um, I think I'm just overall like the overarching role that I've always found myself in is a communicator. That's what Mm. I do best. I like to talk. I haven't always liked to listen, which has changed since I got sober and I Mm. didn't even realize how absent I was from listening to people. And um and I think that 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 role has has fell into everything that I've everything that I've done. So Mm. now I'm just I have my own podcast. I'm trying to listen to people more and just yeah, communicate. Yeah. I love that you say that you've done so many things and you plan to do so many things. I love Mm -hmm. that we don't have to put ourselves in a box, nor do we have to continue staying in a box as we go forward. I'm also very much kind of a Jill of all trades. I do a thousand different things. I do nothing at all sometimes. So I, (laughs) I hear you in that story. So tell me a little bit more about you and alcohol. What has led you to where you are today? Wow. Okay. I know. Let's go we're for just going to go. I oh, we're really going to go open ended. Yeah. <laughs> I open-ended. love this. I love this. So, my relationship with alcohol was it's been a really complex one. Like, I don't even know that I've ever really shared the complexity of it with anybody before. I mean, outside of like my partner or maybe some family members. But I had a, I grew up in a household where alcohol was consistent. I think a lot of people do where it's always at parties. Mine was every day. I was coming home to alcohol being in the mix in some way, shape, or form. And without, you know, being respectful to my family, I won't go into too many details. But from my perspective, it was a constant. And so I never thought that I could negotiate it out of my life. I thought it was built into the contract of growing up. And you just had to make it work. Hmm. And when I was 15, I started indulging because I grew up in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Really what you do is if you don't have a car and you don't have – you can't go into the city, you sit around at friends' houses and you drink out of a water bottle and you yeah. laugh <laughs> and you giggle and you think that you are grown up. Hmm. And it started at 15 and then I just – as I 
grew older, it just became easier and easier to work into the threading of every single event that I did. Hmm. And by the time I was 21, I already knew what drink I liked. I already knew that I was a Tito's girl. I was at the time. Hmm. I, I knew what my order would be at a bar. I mean, I was so ahead of it because I had been immersed in it for so many years before. And I think really there is some normalcy in my experience and I think that there's a lot of people who have similar relationships with it when they're Mm. young because I I do feel like our society is leaning towards accepting. I mean, it's this big slingshot of like when you're 21, you get to rage. Mm. When you're 21, when you're 21. So of course you want to cheat the system and like have that fun beforehand. But really when it started getting bad was when I was maybe 23. I started noticing that I was hungover all the time. And then the kind of hamster wheel began of Hmm. I'm hungover. I don't feel good. I made some mistakes. I'm I'm not going to drink again. Five o'clock hits. I'm feeling better. God, I could really go for a beer. That beer turns into a shot. The shot turns into another night and and I'm waking up the next day feeling the exact same way and I went for years like that. And then when the pandemic hit, I was on a different level because I was still running that cycle but nothing else was moving around me. Mm. So I was really, 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 really aware of – my dependency. And look, we were and still kind of are in a global whole planet pandemic. If that's going to be the time where you want to escape, that's it, I would pretty much say. So I don't feel shame in the way that I relied on the only thing that I was ever really sure at that time in my mind could alleviate some Mm. stress. But it did really make me reflect. And there were two parts to that reflection. The first part where I was like, oh, I am just like, I'm starting to look and feel and act like the person that I as a child Mm. got trauma from. The first part of that reaction was, no, I'm not. Mm. I'm the total opposite of that. I don't oh my gosh, if I have a problem with alcohol, then I'm like that person and I don't. So I'm going to avoid that truth. And I made an entire like – I started this thing on Instagram called Pretty Tipsy where I would give Mm. tips to people while I was tipsy and I like really honed and I was like, if I can make it productive, then it's not a problem, right? If I can make it – if everybody is telling me that I'm really funny, then it's not a problem. Hmm. And I had one family member say, are you really drinking in those videos? Like, are you a little worried about that? And I had the biggest reaction to it. I was like, Mm -hmm. what are you even talking about? You don't have trust in me? What, do you not trust that I can't keep it under control? Do you not trust that I don't have enough maturity to navigate this properly? Like, Hmm. out of all the things I've been through, out of all the things I've seen, I mean, I had a really big reaction to it. The second part of it was – Here's the thing. If I don't acknowledge that I am just like that person who caused me so much trauma, 
I am then that person who caused me so much trauma. It's the mm. fixing the problem that made me different, not the ignoring it. And when that clicked for me, there were a few more weeks of the cycle because mm -hmm. it is a slow burn. I think there's so many seeds that have to be planted and it's big, 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 big realizations that you're processing and digesting. And I think in some way I allowed myself that time to mm. just peel away. And I was reading some really good books and they were changing my perspective. Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Quit Drinking. Mm -hmm. Like a friend had sent me a video of Nikki Glaser talking about how she did it and now she doesn't drink. And hmm. the point of the video wasn't for me to hear that. It was to hear the joke after it. But <gasps> it was just timing. It was yeah. just like timing. All right, universe. Yeah, exactly. I was like waiting for my food order. I was watching this video in the car and I was like, I'm going to order that book. And I knew that it would have a profound change in my life. And it was scary, but it was – in some ways, I think I knew I was ready to just start walking a different path. Hmm. And now I'm here, you know, a year and a half later and could not imagine my life back to where it was. Hmm. That has been insane. So nice long answer for you. <laughs> Beautiful. I, I love that so much. And and I one of the things that you said made me think of one of the things I heard you talk about on your own podcast, Clear Headed. And it was the episode where you and Sarah, your partner, were talking about both of your sobriety. And you described it as the shattering of that moment where everything breaks and you cannot go back to that moment before. So when you talk about this idea of you had this realization and then it still, you know, it still took a couple of weeks to be able mm -hmm. to get your feet underneath you and add more tools to your toolbox and learn more about this and finally get to a place where you could make that change. That just makes me think of like that idea of the shattering. It's like once you had that thought, there's no going back. There's no going back to who you were before that moment. And I thought that was a really really interesting and, and, and in my experience, at least accurate description of it. It's like you can't unknow what you know. So when you had those weeks and you were reading Alan Carr's book and you were stepping forward into this new life, what was it like in the early days for you? It was a single. I mean, I w it was mm. just with me. I hadn't even admitted really like vocally or in a full sentence even in my head that I had a problem. I was mm. just picking up tools around me as if I did, but it was like so many phases of learning and understanding. And I think because for so many people, and I guess I'll really keep it to myself, the idea that I had a problem with alcohol was like the biggest pill I mm. I could ever swallow. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't one gulp. It was like a lot of water, a lot of trying again. <laughs> I mean, taking the pill out, examining it, you know, mm -hmm. reading these books was like the the examining the pill, like, wow, this is a big freaking pill. How am I gonna <laughs> swallow this? Do I yeah. even want to swallow this pill? I mean, totally. shoot, I don't know that I do I need to swallow this pill. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth internally. And interestingly enough, because I think 
it was just meant to be. And I don't want to sound too like hippie or I don't know. I'm very a spiritual person, but I feel like – People go all in. Okay. I feel like I was meant to have this experience and then because I was doing what I was meant to do – Everything else paused. I didn't have any auditions. I didn't have any drama with family. I didn't have mm. any drama with friends. I didn't have any chaos. It was just like this stillness in the air around me to allow for growth and change. There's like there had to be room on the shelf to add more things. And so Absolutely. everything kind of cleared out. Mm. Me being in it, I don't think I realized that that was what was happening. But being outside and looking back, I can see it now. And that just even looking back and being able to observe that has given me so much peace in whatever I'm in right now, Mm. I might not be able to see it, but I will when I take myself out and I look back later. Mm. This idea of like taking everything off the shelf, I think really resonates with me. Um, in my uh, my other life, I, I work with women who are looking to change their relationship with alcohol. And I believe very firmly that willpower is so little of this. What is more impactful in our journey to change our relationship with alcohol is our capacity. Yeah. So when we have a shelf that is completely full of so many things, a lot of drama in our life, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of stress, it makes it really hard to make that choice and to take that action and, and, and remove this thing. And, and one of the things you said that really, really stuck out to me is like, I didn't have shame in using this substance because it was a tool. Mm-hmm. Of course, in, in the middle of a global pandemic, I mean, there's even so much data now that tells us that alcohol use for everyone, women, men, adults, everybody had escalated alcohol use at the beginning of the pandemic and all the way through because of this added stress, this uncertainty, this unknown that we were all experiencing and in so many ways are still experiencing. And so it makes perfect sense. And I think that that's a really useful and helpful way to look at it, to say, I don't, I don't have shame about this because of course I did. Of course I had this experience. And I, I'm so glad you said that because I know somebody needs to hear that, that mm. of course of course you're here and it makes sense yeah. and there's no shame in it. And what do we do moving forward? Yeah. When you said that this was the biggest pill that you could swallow, it, it made me laugh. When I was – when I first got sober, I was so mad. I was so mad that this was my thing. I was like, give me anything else. I Literally know. anything else. I would love for any other thing to be my thing no matter how gnarly because this one just really sucks. I know. It's hard. It is like a big fat pill. <laughs> yeah, it's a big fat pill. And of course, you and I, you know, on the other side of it can say, thank God it was our thing. Thank God that yeah. was the thing that was the thing that forced us into change. But at the time, yeah. I was so mad. <laughs> and I don't I think I had it. the language. I don't think I had the language, but I would have said it was a really big pill too. Yeah. So when you started to work through this, when you started to swallow that pill, what did it start looking like for you afterwards? Well, I also want to say that like I'm glad that that resonates with you because I think that most people understand how big of a pill it is and that is precisely what stops them from swallowing yes. it. Mm-hmm. And from a po- like even opening the pill bottle of the big mm-hmm. pill, like talking about it, ordering a yeah. book, opening that chat and having that discussion and starting those questions is 
you know, it's it's a lot. So mm. I think that I continue to navigate as best as I can from the place of like even with myself of understanding it's really uncomfortable hmm. and that if it was super comfortable and it was really easy to do all the time, no one would drink booze. It wouldn't yeah. even be a thing because once you don't have it and you have adjusted and you don't and it is easy, it's like why Why is anybody doing this? Why, hmm. it, why, why did I do this for so long? And the reason is because it's really hard to not. Yeah. But going to your question of like what did it look like after I swallowed that pill – Yeah. After you started getting your feet (laughs) underneath you, what – I mean, why are you a year and a half sober now? There are so many things that have gone into it and it's so interesting. I just had this like conversation with my friend Courtney and she – her and I were talking about how the tools that we – that we acquire and that we start with might not always work for us later down the line. Like the way that I coped in the beginning probably wouldn't and don't look anything like what I do now Um, because it's a journey. It's like a – it's a moving piece of art that is just Mm. always adjusting and changing and uh, that's life. But in the first – I mean candy out the (laughs) – but I mean mean, candy, 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 sugar, sugar, sugar. I allowed myself – I still allow myself to have candy and, you know, this is not a suggestion that I have, but <laughs> when I first started not drinking, I, when I would want to have a drink, I'd have a cigarette. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know it's awful, <laughs> but it was better than tequila. Yeah. And that's kind of been my motto, not with the cigarette, but just with the look. If I'm feeling like in some way, some part of me is feeling triggered, like I need an escape, like I need to do something that I haven't done in a long time or I don't have or I feel like needs to be some kind of treat, even if it's messed up in the way that it's delivered, like a cigarette is not a treat. It's bad for you and it's not Mm -hmm. healthy. But if I'm going to go and I feel myself going there, I try to give myself the grace to know that just because I'm abstaining from alcohol and substances – doesn't mean that the rest of my life has to look perfectly healthy. Hmm. It would be unfair to hold myself to that caliber this early on in the scope of things, a year and a half if I'm Hmm. going for my entire life. That choice to me actually isn't the healthier thing to abstain from everything because it will make me – I know myself. It will make Hmm. me slingshot. It will make me go and reach for that drink. It will make me convince myself that the wine is totally fine. So – Having grace and letting myself splurge on things like candy and having a cigarette, which mm-hmm. just like I sound like a 50s housewife, but <laughs> I totally I like let myself do it in the beginning. And as I got more comfortable with the fact and the experiences of, wow, I just thought I wanted a drink. I had a candy. I had a frozen Snickers. And look, it's 20 minutes later and I'm so happy I didn't have that drink Mm. and I just wanted something sweet or I just wanted to do something because so much of it for me was like doing something. It was the experiences of seeing that payoff that allowed me to then get more comfortable saying, wow, I really want to drink, but I don't – I've already had three Snickers today. (laughs) Do I need Mm. to go reach for that Frozen? It just was a gradual shift of healthier, better options. And Mm. now I really like tea. I love a sparkling water. And I am at a point where I 
don't feel triggered by non-alcoholic options. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll do that just to give myself the the option of feeling like I can still be social, like I can still be a hostess. If people are over, I'll make them a non-al cocktail. Still feeling like I have that part of myself that is healthier and better mm. and more present. You know, I always say um, a cookie is still better than a glass of wine in my books because a cookie doesn't make me lose my keys or pick a fight with my husband. So yeah, it's always, totally. always better in my books. And you mentioned that you're not triggered anymore by non-alcoholic options. Was that difficult mm-hmm. for you at the beginning? It was something that I was considering because I feel like it's very different for everybody, like everybody's timeline. Some people yeah. just never become a non-al. They never really want to hold a beer or they never right. really want the taste of like a Heineken Zero at lunch. I don't know. <laughs> but I think that I just chose to be incredibly protective of myself mm. because I cared so deeply about staying the course. So it was like probably where my overthinker – little bit of childhood trauma came in of anticipating the worst case scenario and then prepping for it. (laughs) I like that though, because that's a common question I get all the time of like, do you recommend non-alcoholic options? And I'm like, it totally depends. It is, it is truly like a 50-50 split. I see people who it works just fine and I see people who absolutely will not touch them. And and I think that there's not a wrong answer there. I think it's yeah. – and, and I like that you said that yours has evolved over time because that's the other thing. We start to get our legs underneath us. We start to figure things out and start to build other coping mechanisms so that we have different tools to use and it becomes less of – it doesn't carry as much weight over time. And, right. and when you talk about this – beautiful evolving art piece uh, that is your sobriety. I love that. I call it a living document. And I'm like, why don't I call it a beautiful evolving art piece? Because that's so much more poetic. But I think that that's it. That's it. It really does start to evolve over time and you start to become more settled in it. Hey, Sober Stories crew, your host Beth here. Are you someone who is listening to these stories weekly, working on stringing together your first few days alcohol-free? Or maybe you can get a few days or even weeks under your belt, but you run out of steam eventually and go back to alcohol. That's because willpower is simply not enough. Ditching alcohol in a sustainable way has so much more to do with your physiology, your environment, your stress load, and on and on and on. That's why I combined my background in clinical therapy with my four and a half years alcohol-free to create the Booze Breakup, a program for women ready to ditch the nightly bottle of wine and build a sustainable version of this, whatever this is for you, that feels really, really good. If you're ready to make this stick in your craving community with other alcohol-free women, use code SOBERSTORIES for $50 off your enrollment to the Booze Breakup at theboozebreakup.com. Rooting for you always. So... When I was listening to Clear Headed, your podcast, one of the episodes that I listened to was an episode with you and your partner, Sarah, who is also sober. Yeah. And one thing that y'all said, and I know Sarah's not here, so we don't need to speak for Sarah, but <sighs> one of y'all said, we always thought alcohol was the solution, but it was really the problem within mm-hmm. your relationship. Can you speak more to that and what that looked like before and after for y'all? Yes. This is such going to be a good story. So Sarah and I were best friends for years. We're both dating men. We're both out drinking, partying. We worked at a restaurant. 
Um, and the restaurant industry, I'm sure everybody's aware, is like totally yeah. booze soaked. Totally. Much like any industry, honestly. I mean, like, you know, you go into like a corporate office and I'm sure somebody's got a bar cart somewhere in their office. But mm-hmm. um I waited tables at the Red Lobster in Houston, Texas, and it was like even the Red Lobster is very boozy. It's like your shift ended, you'd go drink at the bar with those yeah, disgusting yeah. $20 <laughs> cocktails. So yes, the restaurant industry is sugar filled and Ugh. hangover fueled. You like, I can, like still it taste it. Nymph. Ah, stop. No. (laughs) Anyway, carry on with your much more beautiful story. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, yeah, everything. So so we both worked at a restaurant and we were just best friends. And the way that we started connecting was alcohol. Hmm. Her and I are very different people. I am bubbly and talkative and I want to like ask you a million questions and I kind of want to be the center of tension all the time. And Sarah is like totally the opposite. She is like, I want to observe and I'm cool to just kind of hang tight and sit in the back. So the first ways that we connected was grabbing a drink together and just chatting and becoming friends. And that relationship then evolved to drinking buddies. And Sarah's working the same night I am. Ooh, let's go out. And then – that friendship just really became fueled by booze. And mm. by proxy, our romantic relationship became fueled by booze. I had never mm. kissed a woman. I didn't know what that was going to feel like for me. And I did it drunk. So we like started that venture drunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we fell in love drunk. And when it was like the first couple of months of our relationship and when we had decided – We have really strong feelings for each other and why wouldn't we try it? Like it's not gonna – it's gonna be more painful to not try it than to try it because we really loved each other and we still do. We have such connection that I've never felt before. But every single time that we would hang out, it would be the booze again and that Mm. was – you know, stir up some insecurities or it would stir up inappropriate questions or the tone in which a question was asked would then riff off into some kind of shamble of an argument and it would be really tense. And um, it was Thanksgiving in 2020 and I went to meet her family and have Thanksgiving with them. And we got, I mean, obliterated rosé, tequila, drink, drink, drink. That situation was so stressful and I just leaned into the fact that everybody would think that because it was so stressful to hand me another glass of rosé, I mean, I really kind of milked it. I knew what Mm. I was doing. And we ended up fighting in a bathroom. Her parents could hear it. I mean, it Mm. was messy. It was messy. And I woke up the next day so that is when I felt shame because Mm. I knew that it wasn't true to myself. And I knew that this impression that I had been making and that was continuing to make on her, on her family, on myself, Hmm. wasn't honest. And that's when the groundwork really kind of started and I kept it to myself. And, you know, I I mentioned, hey, I think I want to like take a break from booze. That was really messy. I'm going to like maybe try to like not drink when we're when we're hanging out. And she was really all in for it. She was like, totally. She'd been sober before. And we got into another fight uh, like maybe 10 days later. And it wasn't good. And it was messy. And, and the next day I came over and I thought we were going to break up. Hmm. And I said for the first time ever, like even to myself, I said, I have a problem with alcohol. 
And it was like everything shifted. She understood more. I understood more. It was undeniable that that was so true. That statement was so true that it impacted everything up until then. And we both just said, we can be better. We can do better. This doesn't have to be something that we have to keep in our lives. We can step away from it and it's going to be hard and it's going to be uncomfortable, but let's do it. Sarah didn't Hmm. feel like it was valuable in her life. I didn't feel like it was valuable in my life. And so we made the choice to be sober together. That looked very different for each of us because we were doing it for very different reasons. She didn't get sober because of me sure, or for me. She got sober for herself in our relationship. And I think that our journeys have looked different. I mean, she mm-hmm. – I mean, fundamentally the same. We've both been sober. It's been linear for us so far, both. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not always linear for everybody and I definitely understand that. But we've just been lucky and I think having a partner – I've been lucky enough to say that that's a tool in my toolkit is having a a partner who's on the same page. You know, and I I think – I'm trying to think you might be one of the first people on this podcast that I've talked to who has a sober partner. And I think that that, like you said, that is a really – powerful tool to have in your toolkit, not simply because it helps you stay sober, but I think it's a very different experience to be understood by somebody who is doing the same thing. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I, and I think it's really important that we are all seen in a, a relationship like that, maybe not our partner, maybe not our spouse, but somebody who relates to us and says, like, you and I can talk and I can say, yeah, Kate, I totally know what you mean about, like, this is something that was becoming a problem and this is how it was showing up in your life. But when you talk to somebody who either doesn't have a problem with drinking or maybe does but is still drinking and still using alcohol, like, there's just a very different version of being seen and held so what did it look like for y'all after alcohol was removed? One of the, the this idea of like we thought that alcohol was the solution, but it was really the problem. What changed in the relationship? Well, we still had arguments like as every couple does, but they weren't so fueled by like confusion and lack of logic, which then made them mm. really easy to wrap up. I can say that for my personal journey, like my first year was a lot of getting to know my feelings. I had been Mm. numb to my feelings, which is just so interesting. Like I'm an actor. What I want to do is go emote feeling and go absorb a script and know what it feels like and know what that character is feeling and then relay that so that an audience knows what it's feeling. And I was so disconnected from Hmm. that feeling. So there were so many levels to, wow, how do I feel in my day-to-day? How do I apply that then to a career that I want to have? That totally changed my approach to acting, everything that I thought, the roles I wanted to go out for, everything. That totally shattered. And so there was a lot of – I think because everything shattered, just like with glass on the ground, you walk really carefully. You make sure Mm. your shoes are on. You don't reach down with bare hands. And that's kind of how I approached and we approached every single thing in our relationship. 
We had our metaphorical, I think it's metaphorical, shoes on. We made sure our, you know, our hands were covered. We just really were very, very mindful and careful of the way that we spoke to each other, the way that we spoke to ourselves. It wasn't perfect. There were a lot of flubs. There's a lot of trial by error. I think that's a quote. But, you know, there is a, a lot of trying things out. And I am aware of how rare it is to have a partner that's willing to be in that same place of vulnerability of like, hmm. I don't know, or even just turning to each other and going, ooh, that didn't feel good. I didn't like that. Hmm. I'm feeling anxious and I don't really know why. I don't really like the way that you said that to me, but I have no idea the way I'd prefer you to say it to me. Like this, hmm. it's this, in order to be able to wrap it up, you have to like let it all hang out and let it fall out yeah. and be messy before you can make it clean. Uh, I mean, even going back to like the shelf comparison, like when you're cleaning off that shelf and when you are making space, it is a jumble in whatever bag mm. you're putting it into to donate to get rid of. I mean, that bag's messy, <laughs> you know? It's it's like yeah. – it's and you have to allow for that mess. And I think mm. that our journey was like allowing for that mess, just completely and totally yeah. allowing for it and having patience with ourselves most importantly – and prioritizing ourselves and trying to really get used to being in a relationship but not feeling obligated to each other's feelings, just feeling mm. obligated to our own. Well, and I, I think you're right. It's really vulnerable to step into a container, a relationship, whatever whatever it is with your full faculties and all of your feelings and not numbing them down and not pushing them aside and not using a substance to take the edge off. It can feel very vulnerable to step into that and then to learn how to first identify our feelings that we've disconnected with for so long and then to learn how to express those to another person in a way that gets our needs met and lets us be seen and lets us show up in the relationship is really vulnerable. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people are going to resonate with this idea of how the dynamic shifts in the relationship when you remove alcohol, because it forces you in some ways to just become a more honest version of yourself in the relationship. And and I think that that's really powerful. I also really like that you said that, you know, Sarah got sober and and, and stayed sober for herself. She didn't do it for you and, and you didn't do it for her and y'all didn't do it for anybody else. And I think that's really important to, to say. I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think that there's never been anybody who's been successful, but right. I find that people are more successful removing alcohol from their life when they do it for themselves and by proxy, how they are able to show up in relationships and how they are able to show up for their work and their, for for their career. I would love to talk about like work and Hollywood and LA (laughs) and like booze culture and acting. And I didn't even like think about the kind of roles that you would take, but like, that's an interesting thread. I know. So like, tell me all of it. Well, Like one of the first things I did when I was like, I think I really am going to have to like cut out alcohol is the first thing I did was I Googled what celebrities are sober because I really – the illusion of Hollywood is it's champagne popping and it's like Mm -hmm. clubbing and it's mead and it's like networking over drinks and you want to grab a drink and you want to do this and you want to do that and everything surrounds booze. And so I – 
really tried to spend time grounding myself and like being really open to the possibility that that might be a facade in the very same way Mm. that when you see a movie and there's a huge lion talking to a tiny baby, that didn't really happen. (laughs) That was CGI and that was probably a tennis ball hanging and a guy in a green suit and, Uh you know, that baby was a twin and it might not even be the baby that you thought it was. It might be the twin baby. Like there's so much that goes into the final project. And I really like your metaphors, just as a side note. Thank you so much. I follow them. They're good. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I think that that's the way that drinking in Hollywood is seen. It's like this hmm. big final project. But really what it is, is I can say even like, I mean, like for me, I feel like it's a lot of, there is a lot of it. Like there's a lot of drinking. There's also a lot of ways around it. and. Um, some of the most talented, successful people are sober. And Mm -hmm. their career and their day-to-day and their life still looks just as glamorous and just as wanted Mm. and desirable. And so I spent a lot of time kind of refocusing on that. And then, I mean, to like pull it back to just like the feelings portion of this, I had – and kind of what I mentioned earlier is like I – I didn't even realize how much I really like to listen to people. Like I just Mm. was so either thinking about when my next margarita was coming, how do I get people to take shots with me? In what ways can I make this seem like it's it's fun and social? Um, What drink should I get? I mean, in a conversation at a networking thing, all I would be thinking about was Mm -hmm. the alcohol. So I was so not listening. And now that that has been removed and that it's comfortably removed from my life, I really started realizing like I really like to listen. Like I really like to Mm. hear. I like to ask. And this last year, this thing that I told myself is like my New Year's resolution was instead of getting judgmental, I was going to get curious. Mm. And I think that's really like more truthful to me. Like old Katie was like very judgmental. It's how I was raised. It's – do you know – have you heard of the Chani app? It's like an Mm -mm. astrological – App. It's done by Chani Nichols. She, okay. I think it's Nichols Nicholas. I don't know if I'm butchering. I'm very sorry if I am, but <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. She has a book, and in the introduction, she knocks a nail on the head. <laughs> like I'm so good at metaphors, but I'm also really yeah. bad at sayings. Yeah. <laughs> it's the nail on the head. It's there the we go. Nail on the head. She says, in her childhood growing up, judgment was absent. And so if she can bring judgment to a situation, it's like something that she holds close to chest. And that's exactly how I felt. Uh, Judgment Mm. was so lacking in a lot of areas of my childhood that I learned very early to be very judgmental of a situation for survival and to also Mm. feel like I had my own back. So Mm. now that I have kind of put a lot of there's a lot of peace around the things I would normally judge out of survival. I've been able to get more curious and that has then played into I'm curious about like my talent. I'm curious about like where I can go. I'm mm. curious about where I want to go. I feel like so much of the world and creativity and possibilities has been so opened by not feeling tethered to alcohol. 
I don't have to worry about my Uber. I don't have to worry about if my car is going to get towed. I don't have to worry about what I said, how I said it. Was it okay? Was it not? Because I feel confident Mm -hmm. in every single thing that I say and do. And if I don't feel confident about it in the moment, I feel confident that I can fix it if it needs to be Mm -hmm. fixed. And that has just allowed for career risks. It's allowed for big leaps. It's allowed for uncomfortable questions and stepping away from things that maybe don't feel like they fit me anymore in my career. Mm-hmm. And it's just been such a a growing process. I think my biggest realization around my career was I realized that so many of the milestones that I wanted to be at mm-hmm. were being dictated by like the 12-year-old me of this Mm. is where I want to be when I'm this age. This is what I want to have done when I'm this age. And if a 12-year-old walked up to me right now and said, hey, kid, I'm going to give you career advice and this is where (laughs) you need to be and this is when you need to have hit that milestone and this is how much money you should have in your bank account, I would straight up laugh it off and walk away. And because I put it into that perspective, I'm like, I'm not going to tether myself to these unattainable, unrealistic goals that I set as a 12-year-old. Why am I living like that is the rule? So there's just been a lot that's come in my career with understanding my feelings. And I mean, that was kind of a jumbled answer, but. I got it. Well, (laughs) and isn't it so interesting that we, when you said that this idea of like maybe this boozy Hollywood thing is a facade. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not real. And and I hear when you say that like this is a story we've written, this is a story we've created that maybe bears no truth. And I think that those stories can be such a barrier for people to make positive change in their life because they're so afraid of living out the, the wrong end of the story when really it's like, is this even real? Is this even the truth? And, and we've also oddly conflated, and I think this is like a long, you know, we have a long history of conflating alcohol and like misuse of alcohol specifically with creativity and, you know, the tortured artists. Absolutely. And and it's the reality of it is that it disconnects us from our creativity and it disconnects us from our, like the spark inside of us so much. And, And I see it over and over and over again when people remove this from their life their life expands so drastically. They're doing new things. They're trying new projects. They have new ideas. I mean, like, if you had asked me what I liked to do five years ago when I was, like, in the worst of my drinking, I'd be like, hang out with friends and drink. And it's like this the smallness of my world was – and I was happy with it. I was fine. Well, I guess five years ago. The math doesn't quite work out. But when I was like – before my own shattering, before this this understanding of like I can't go back from here, I was happy with that. I was fine being in this very small, very insular experience. And and there's just so much richness on the other side of it and so much creativity. And, and now I'm the kind of person that has a thousand different things, you know, a million balls in the air, spinning plates. We're going to lose ourselves yeah, in some metaphors here too. But – it's just so refreshing to hear somebody say like, this has given me such a different perspective on this and this is starting to dictate what I do. And and I imagine like if it were me and, and I'm like the farthest possible thing from an actress, <laughs> but I would also like it would change the roles that I would take and, and I wouldn't do the ones that glamorize or 
trivialize alcohol use or like I think about um oh gosh I should know her name um the flight attendant uh Kaylee Cuoco yeah and 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 to see like some representations of alcohol use now that are more accurate to like my lived experience for certain versus like the glamorization that we grew up with and you know the gossip girl and all the things where you see where it's like man, that looks so fun to see it represented differently. I think it's really powerful and, and, and speaks to this creativity and the power of, of like, yeah, no, totally. And also, I mean, I do also just want to say that like, there's a flip side to the stories that Hollywood tells us with glamorizing alcohol. Mm. And that flip side is that you don't have a problem unless you have lost, wrecked, and ruined every relationship yeah. in your – like you have to be so down on your totally. luck. You have to be hit to the super rock bottom. Bef- and then when, when you check mm. all of those boxes, then you should reevaluate your relationship. And mm. then guess who's the villain of the story? Yeah. The person who's suffering. Mm. And that – is what is starting to change on what we see on TV and we're starting to see more of the truth and the real and the raw. And I do think that, of course, there are so many stories of really rock bottoms and they Mm. are so valid and I am not trying to take away from that some people do get there, need to get there, and that is what causes their wake-up call. But there are a lot of people, my story included, who – didn't get a DUI, who didn't completely Mm. ruin a relationship, who didn't cause absolute mayhem, but it was really unhealthy and uncomfortable. And that is still okay to green light yourself and say, I'm going to start asking these hard questions. I'm going to look at that pill and I'm going to get ready to swallow it because it's just as true, big and uncomfortable as a person who is suffering from large consequences. So mm, Holly has just been doing it for longer. Yeah, absolutely. And realizing too that, you know, part of my realization was understanding that I wasn't different from anybody that I had ever judged or thought had a problem. I was just as capable. It was just as easy for me to become just as dependent, reliant, yeah. and functioning with that substance as anybody else that I had seen. And I think that was a whole other hard pill to swallow, but there was a lot (laughs) of freedom in that as well because I wasn't alone and no one else was alone either. And we were all Mm. capable of being in it together, through it together, whether that was a high or a low. And and that was really insightful for me to to realize. Mm. All swallowing that same hard pill, Mm. but – Makes us better on the other side. There's got to be. Let's we like build a whole health metaphor out of this. I like it. I know. <laughs> well, okay, I could like talk about this with you all day. I resonate a lot with many pieces of your story and the way that this was this internal experience versus this outward rock bottom. And I think that you've given so much insight to this thought process of 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 the shattering of the hard pill and of this stepping forward into what is a very objectively a brave decision to remove this from our lives. It's something a lot of people can't do, something a lot of people won't do. But I hope that there's somebody who hears your story and receives this permission. The last question I always ask every podcast is, if your story were to be written into a book, what would it be titled and what sort of story would it be? That is such a good question. I love that you ask everybody that. Um, (laughs) 
my story would be titled – and what's so funny is I've had this book idea, this book title. I don't have a book. I have no idea. If I could voice <laughs> to text an entire book, that's how it would get written. Go. I'm like mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. not a writer. I hate like sitting down mm-hmm. and writing and focusing. But I would – when you ask me that question, I have it in my notes and it would be called – I'm just here to help. And I think that it would – it's still being written. I mean, it's still – I don't think I would have a book for a while. But yeah, I think throughout my life, whether that's being a personal assistant and assisting in somebody else's dream, helping my family or friends, now hopefully helping other people find their moment of clarity, I think I just want to be a, a vessel of helping I think it maybe would be like a bunch of short stories. I don't know. Maybe it would just only be an audio book. I don't know. It's yeah, kind of there you go. Hey, about. that solves your book. Yeah, that solves your big book writing problem. Just speak it aloud and then we'll, yeah. we'll make it come to fruition. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your story, for your time and your candor and your money. I mean, I've got so many nuggets from this that I can Yay. make into quilt posts. So thank you for making my job a little bit easier. Absolutely. But I just – really appreciate your perspective and I have already really enjoyed your podcast. So Thank shameless you. plug for Kate's podcast, <laughs> Clear Headed. It's a really beautifully, a really beautifully produced podcast with such an interesting spin. So I know our people are going to want to connect with you. If they want to find you, how can they connect with you? What's going on in your world? Um, you can find me on Kate Madry, C-A-I-T-M-A-D-R-Y. Um, you can also find us on Clearheaded Podcast on Instagram. And um, we will be doing a big launch of our website that will house a lot of really great tools, uh, tips, blog posts, videos. Stay tuned. It's it's all being built. Amazing. But follow oh, along. That's and, so exciting. Yes. Um, I'm excited to build a, a sober world. <laughs> I love it. I love it. More spaces for more people in the sober space. There is so much room for just more, more stories, more spaces, more doors to open. That is like, that is, that is my jam. That is my favorite thing to hear. <laughs> well, I appreciate you so much and am just so glad to know you now and to send people your way to listen to the Clearheaded podcast. Check out what thank y'all you. have coming when your website launches. But Kate, I appreciate you and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Beth. I love this. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Kate Madry. When Kate talked about the shattering, I felt so seen. It's one of those things where you know what you know, and there is no going back. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.